substance equals spin The propagandas win Stress feeding on my attention My countrymen, they love their fiction Words are now This way with good intentions Welcome back to One of Two Hundred Your uh, independent politics and media podcast this is an issues episode, so often we do weekend episodes based on current events, but this is an issue-specific episode with people um, interested in this topic. This is co-host Philip. We also have Josephine. How are you doing, Josephine? Yoda, um, I've just been, you know, grappling with what's going on around the world at the moment. Um, so yeah, it's just been a difficult time for me, as it is for a lot of people. So I'm really, you know, I'm really glad that we're having this conversation. Um, yeah. Fantastic. And we have Nadia Abushanab. How are you doing, Nadia? Kia ora, everyone. I'm Nadia. I woke up this morning and the last few days have been super intense. I'm observing the way that people around us and our networks and our communities are all kind of, we know what we're witnessing and we know we're about to witness it in real time. And um, it feels like we're sitting on the precipice of, of watching a genocide of the Palestinian people unfold in real time and that not only are we going to witness that but we for those of us who like sit under the power of western states that our governments are actually going to support that process so it's a really really heavy time but I'm glad to be here it's really important to have these kind of spaces they're rare they're precious but people are really hungry for them so thank you for having us. Thanks Nadia that's a great a great amount of context and weight to start this conversation with I think uh, we also have Marilyn Garson. How are you doing, Marilyn? Uh, hi, thank you. Kia ora. I'm uh, Marilyn Garson. I'm a co-founder of Alternative Jewish Voices, and um, I worked for four years in Gaza at the end of nearly two decades of working with communities affected by war. So I've been feeling this very personally on a bunch of levels. And um, I think it's worth saying that in all my years uh, I've not agreed to use the word genocide with reference to Palestine because on language, I prefer to sit back and wait for certain experts to lead me. And I've just begun to use the word for the first time to say on this track, uh, if someone does not pull the handbrake, I'm afraid that's that's what's in front of us. Hmm. Wow. Thanks, Marilyn. Yeah, we're definitely at a um, at a historic inflection point, it feels like, right? Um, okay, so there's obviously a, a weight of kind of context and history behind this, but also current events have have propelled this to the front of the kind of international imaginary, right? Um, so Josephine, would you like to kick us off with your your thoughts that you've been talking about recently? Yes, absolutely. Um, I just think that civilian deaths are unacceptable. Non-civilian deaths are unacceptable. Human death is unacceptable. Planetary destruction is unacceptable. Yet what we are seeing around us is an increase in these happenings. There is an increase in militarization happening across the world. We are already at the brink of the Third World War. In all, in both these contexts where there's active war fronts that are, you know, visible to us through the Western media, there's wars happening elsewhere, which are not, you know, being discussed as much. But in these two contexts of Ukraine and Palestine, we're seeing just weapons being sent to fuel human death even more and more. This is not just human deaths, it's also planetary destruction. If we are interested in, you know, in, in our environment and the health 
of the planet, we must be questioning militarization happening across the world. This is also a question of, in my view, coming from the global south and an anti-colonial perspective, people from, you know, contexts like, um, for example, apartheid um, South Africa from India, straight after independence, that's when 1948, you know, the Nakba happens. We stood in solidarity, the Indian people at the time were able to understand the plight of Palestinian people. And we can see globally that, you know, the countries that recognize Palestine, you can see that all these countries have been impacted by Western colonialism. And the countries that are currently supporting Israel's actions, which include a siege, cutting off water, food, electricity, and on top of that, simultaneous bombardment with precision, you know, advanced military equipment. So this is really concerning. And as a, you know, as humanity, we need to come together and speak up against militarism, speak up against the use of these weapons of mass destruction that are being used and think about how we can for, further peace across the world. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Um, there, there's always this kind of uh, flattening right in the media when we try to have these conversations, we being the kind of, I suppose, Anglosphere um, who are interested in current events or international affairs. It's There's always the kind of primacy of what's just happened, like recency bias um, is how kind of, you know, relatively disinterested kind of international actors see these things, right? So I think it's our job as, as people who care, as people who've kind of spent a bit more time than average looking into these things, to constantly be reminding people that this isn't about one event, right? There's there's no such thing as like the start of history. We have to go back and see like what caused the cause. Um, and it's far too easy to forget that stuff based on what we're seeing in the in the response to the recent kind of actions. You know, the context of you know two two million Palestinians under military siege for sixteen years, um, then an average age in Gaza of eighteen or nineteen years old. So half the population are children. Um, you're not you're not talking about uh, a state on a state in the same kind of way as gets presented so easily, right? Um, and with reference to kind of your experiences, Marilyn, um, that you were starting to talk about when you were spending time over there talking to uh, civilians and kind of advocating for for peace in that in that space, how does that connect to kind of what you saw? Um, so let me say very briefly that um, I was offered a job in. Gaza, my field is job creation in war-affected places. So building social enterprises and companies for the most marginalized groups, Cambodian child soldiers, Afghan women, I was asked to go and try to design something for Af for uh, Gazan university graduates behind a wall. I got so caught up in really the gift of going to Gaza as a Jew, a chance to cross that line and be surrounded by people who I'd been told were my enemy and to learn who they really are. I was so caught up with it that I stayed for four years. When the war of 2014 came closer, because each escalating level of violence has been signaled so clearly, uh, I stayed and I became a member of UNRWA's shelter management team. We were prepared for 35,000 people to be displaced. 293,000 people were displaced. And what we've seen in the last few days is a rate of displacement that, to me, looks two to three times faster. And this is behind a total blockade. So there's no food, water, fuel, electricity. 
being provided. So what I've been trying hardest to say in the last few days is that it's great to understand the context and yet equate the value of human lives, civilian lives. The overwhelming majority of people in Gaza are civilians. It's a community. And the people in those shelters are civilians and they have a right to protection. They have a right to all the essentials to sustain life. Those things are being withheld. And I've seen that people go to astonishing lengths to retain their civility and their sense of mutual aid under this kind of stress. But this is unprecedented. There's no other place on earth where our governments would line up with the army doing what the Israeli army is presently doing and take the side of the army rather than the civilians. So sorry, I haven't responded very specifically, but I just I want to set the context that supporting civilian rights is a way to support the people of Gaza. And then you need to contextualize that with the Palestinian search for freedom and equality within which it's taking place. I've left open the recent events that are the context of these events, but (laughs) it'll do for a start. Yeah, that's vital. Exactly. Um, And the massive asymmetry, right, between the state of Israel and any organization in uh, in Palestine, whether that's Gaza or the West Bank, um, any sort of attempt at leadership structure that gets inevitably undermined and degraded over the years by the vastly, you know, more more powerful, more um, supported Israeli state. Uh, And over the last, what, 15 years, like 96% of deaths have been uh, on the Palestinian side. So as you say, if you're treating life for life in terms of value, you know, equating the value of lives, that's like vital context that you need to have before looking at like indiv- individual events, right? And an ongoing, like horrific, cruel international event like this. And now that we've seen Hamas's biggest attack ever, taking back settlements uh, for the first time, really, that's inevitably going to be kind of elided, I suppose. Right. And the in the way that the international media kind of treats it. There's always been the kind of hypocrisy, I suppose, that we've anyone who's been an activist in this space has has noticed, right? Oh, I would add one dimension of political progress, and that has been the the conscious closing of nonviolent options. Netanyahu's government has explicitly said that only Jewish aspirations, only Jewish claims are valid in this space. And now this government that includes, you know, outright fascists. They are ratcheting up the violence and clearly stating their ambition to do harm, to do really illegal things. So the the political options have been foreclosed before this happened. I just want to, you know, uh, first of all, you know, thank you for that, Marilyn. But I just want to um, extend that discussion from an you know an anti-colonial perspective. Um, I I actually think that Western governments this is not unique uh, that Western governments are supporting these sorts of actions military actions on civilians. This has happened in the past when we look at um, Iraq, when we look at Afghanistan, when we look at many situations of wars. 
multiple Western governments, which who claim to be liberal and democratic, and the you know um, the beacons of human rights, they have lined up behind you know imperialist U.S. imperialist actions, military actions that impacted millions of civilians globally. So this is, in my view, it's 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 uh, it's not a unique. A situation, although it, you know, it, it 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 is in many ways it is, but in terms of Western countries supporting military action against civilians in 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 especially in the global South, um, this is not unique. The Western governments supported the apartheid regime in South Africa um, until very very late, right? Uh, until two thousand and eight, Nelson Mandela was uh, was officially recognized as a terrorist in the United States. So it, it, there is a pattern and many Palestinian scholars that I read have or talked about this pattern. Um, Edward Said, for example, talking about or, Orientalism and how um, people, for example, especially in the Middle East and, um, you know, uh, Muslim dominated regions, uh, being described as dangerous and strange and, you know, savage and barbaric. And these narratives, we can hear them happening around us in relation to this con conflict again, are being used as justification for the extermination of people and for mass violence. So there is a pattern, but I think that the civilians and the common people in Western nations, when they know about this, they will be opposed to it. But there is a pattern among Western governments to support and to line up behind um, these sorts of military mass violence. And to bring that up to date, exactly as, as Marilyn was saying, it's really important to recognize the, the most recent kind of incarnation of that in, in Israel and the most right-wing government they've probably ever had, right? And starting to call it the, the country's 9-11, like we're seeing a retread of some of that dehumanizing rhetoric that we saw after 9-11, um, after 2001. Um, but sort of projecting and looking at where the, where the signs are pointing Nadia, how do you how do you see the kind of developments now compared to you know the the recent atrocities and what we've seen in the past? I suppose. So I guess I just want to start by um, just talking a little bit about you know I think everything that everyone has said is completely true, and I think we are seeing the retreading of like particular stories and particular narratives. But something I've been thinking about a lot is if I were to like walk back through the looking glass and, you know, live my life as a completely different person, if I was seeing this as my entry point and that is how it is being presented to some people and I was seeing the news, which, you know, completely humanizes the Israeli, the Israeli victims and, for example, to say like to think about the horror of the parents who sent their beautiful teenage children off on a long weekend to go to a music festival um, to to hear that they are missing or or um, murdered. And something me and my partner have been talking about is how, you know, for any of us to be confronted with that, like we should be horrified and it is terrible. And when you look at that and when you look at violence, and I think it goes back to how Josephine opened as well, when you look at that violence, we are like, it is abhorrent and it is something that should like penetrate us on a human level. And but the thing that, that's interesting about this thing and being on the other side of it, and I think Marilyn will probably relate to this as well, is the thing with this situation and the thing with the the, the struggle of the Palestinian people is that the more that you look at it and the more that you know, the more terrible it becomes. You know, like it's like the more that you act, 
actually fucking look at it in the face and see what's going on. Like you can watch that news story and be like, that is terrible. That is terrible. And you are right to look at that news story and think that is terrible. But if you come through the other side and you are not watching just um, CNN and you are actually turning on Al Jazeera and you witness what the besieged, brutalised people of Gaza have had to go through, not just now, but I mean for the last 17 years, and you recognise that they are the descendants of 257 villages that were destroyed in the creation of Israel, then it becomes really crystal clear, like, exactly what is happening. And I think there is people who see that all over the world, people of conscience, with absolute clarity. And so it's a complete, like, it, it is, like, part of the whole headcock of this whole thing is that there is this massive, like expansive and expanding layer of us who completely see the situation for what it is. But then you do not see that reflected anywhere institutionally. And you're just in the wilderness. You're in the wilderness. There is no reflection of of that of that reality. And 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 the reflections of it are so so fragile, so limited, so contested, so censured and so sanitized that we are not able to truly engage with the fact that there is also a story of a Palestinian mother who also had her son kidnapped and there are thousands and thousands and thousands more of those stories. You know, I think about the um, beginning of the um, 2014 um, massacre in Gaza and I think about the fact that, you know, Three that began because three Israeli teenagers were were kidnapped, and and you know again the storytelling, um, you know it really is a masterclass. But the storytelling was of those three teenagers being kidnapped, and at that point, and I I really do remember this. At that point, there were 150 Palestinian children being detained inside Israeli jails. They had been kidnapped at night. They were being detained, and that is a routine daily process. Um, that happens. So I think, I, I, I guess, um, yeah, I mean, in terms of what's happening right now, um, like I, you know, it seems so weird to be like pontificating. Like I, I find something a little bit, like I find something a little bit uncomfortable um, with trying to what next this situation. But I think it's also important to understand what the project is about and the Zionist project is about because I think that gives us a real clue. Like the language that is being used right now, and I just want to just mention a couple of things. So we've had um, Benjamin Netanyahu talking about Hamas will never govern again. They will never govern again in in Gaza, right? They will never govern again anywhere. There's there's another clue in that. It's not just about because they know that for, for a group of young Palestinians in the West Bank, the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinian Authorities you know, for those who don't know, the the approach that the Palestinian Authority have agreed to take, which is a non-violent approach, and that's something else I want to just briefly touch on. Non-violence has been the primary approach of the Palestinian people. Non-violent movements have been the primary approach. In in 2018, the youth of Gaza, hundreds of thousands of them, did a mar- a peaceful march of return where they marched on the borders. And they did that every single day. And in the words of Nora Erekat, they were shot like birds. They were shot like birds. And it was an incredible, incredible movement. It was stunning. It was nonviolent. 
and it had absolute political clarity about what it was about. And we saw nothing. You did not hear a single thing about that. The non-violent, like the non-violent strategies that we have deployed over the last few generations are actually incredible. Like it's like you could lay out a tool belt and you could see every single strategy and you see other people using our strategies because some of our strategies have been freaking genius. Like we have pulled on every single cord and we have done it. And you know what? For, for, for a, lot of, a lot of that work has actually resulted in a widespread, growing, continually expansive support for Palestine all over the world and almost irresistible support for Palestine all over the world. Like we have this cause that people are drawn to. You know, I stand alongside people who have no fucker to Palestine. No fuck up whatsoever. And they are giving like literally 24 hours of their days right now. And they will drive themselves in the ground to support us and to be our allies. And I think that needs to be acknowledged. So like we have we have deployed those strategies. We have used nonviolent means. And what is being signaled now is what the project has always wanted, right? And it's wanted an excuse to do. And this is the perfect excuse because I do not believe, like I really think if you see the signals that are being said about we... You know, and I agree with Marilyn, I haven't typically used the word genocide either. I think there's always been a genocidal instinct beneath the settler colonialism, but I don't think it's ever been acted on. I think what has happened now is it's been greenlighted under this government and the language that is being used is clearly foreshadowing, you know, and to, and to think that this is happening. And I want, I want to riff back to Marilyn and just kind of get some of her reflections on this because I think there's a role of like, and it's going to sound a little bit Instagram heavy, but there's a role of like trauma here. And trauma politics and being led from a place of trauma that I, I want to kind of unpack a little bit with Marilyn because maybe she will understand more of that psyche than I do. But, you know, they are talking about go down to Rafa, leave through Rafa. And I truly believe, like, either we are going to see, they've talked about the, basically the, the some of the Zionists that I've seen talking about, make Gaza a kappa, flatten it flatten it, kill every single last one of them. And I think they've got the green light to do that. Okay, but the other option for them is also to push the Gazan population through the Rafa crossing and into Egypt and take that land. And I think that's another option for them. And I think it's one that's fully on the table and it will be fully considered. And if you think about the history of the project, it's always been an expansionist project, a settler colonial expansionist project that's been about the land. And um, yeah, so I just want to like, yeah, I'm, I know that's kind of an incoherent rant, many threads in an answer to that question. Um, there's no joy in like foreshadowing any of that, but it is like what history has taught us. And the more that you understand the history of this project and the more that you understand the historical intention of the project, and also I think the psychological intention of the project and the way that that story has been twisted and changed over time, which is something I'd like to hear Marilyn talk a little bit about, the more that we see that actually it's kind of like Marilyn was saying from the other side about the options for the people of Gaza. I think what is happening now, like, has always been inevitable on one level. And, yeah, so I'll leave that there for now. And I pick up on a few of those. Um, I'm not feeling very coherent either, but this will be a bit bullet pointed. <laughs> they are saying, go out through Rafa, go to Egypt, but they blew up the crossing. There's no crossing left. So that is, that's the madness. That's the delusional nature of putting out a statement that appears to give people options when they're locked in. 
You know, Netanyahu says, tell the civilians to leave. Where do they go? Ow, there's no safe place. One of the the days leading up to 2014 were just intolerable. And believe me, the stress of living behind the blockade is fairly intolerable all the time. But those days, I, I, I couldn't believe it to to understand what Gazans are standing in front of, the language that reaches them, the threats of Israeli uh, members of parliament. You know, the minister of justice in 2014 who said, kill the little snakes and blow up the buildings where the mothers will raise the little snakes. And this time the defense minister has said, I release our soldiers from all constraints, fight without restraint. To stand in front of that is just the most horrifying minute-to-minute fact. I want to pick up on something else that Nadia said, and that is the role of trauma. And I'm not an expert, but I have been thinking about this. Included in that, I've recently read Naomi Klein's book, Doppelganger, which unexpectedly for me has a whole discussion of the role of trauma Um So I'm verging on what she says, and I I recommend it. And that is the way that we Jews are raised to understand the Holocaust, that we, in my experience, widely, I think, are not raised to learn and use and take on the lessons of what was done to us. We are raised to be traumatized, and that is a stuck mentality. That is a a fear-based, perpetually stuck mentality, rather than understanding what happened and trying to channel that into the world. That's not the way most of us are raised. For example, when I was a child, I was sent to a Zionist summer camp for six weeks every year, and I hated it so much. There are family stories about what I did to avoid going, but I went. And One year, they did a five-day reenactment of a concentration camp. I think I was maybe 11 years old, and they got the, the biggest, most intimidating people to act like the guards, holding the rest of us as children in a concentration camp for five days. They're trying, that instills a trauma that many people are still responding to. And I'm sorry, it breaks my heart to see my own community trapped and torn apart, and in some cases, espousing this thing, and in other cases, just perpetuating the trauma. They're trying to kill us. They're trying. We need more security at the synagogues. We're all in danger. I'm not trying to make this about the Jewish community, but I think understanding, um, I think it's useful to understand that a whole segment of that response is conditioned in a way that helps to offer license, which in turn hands trauma to others and therefore just perpetuates the cycle. I think that's worth understanding. Thanks so much, Marilyn. And Nadia, that's heartbreaking and enlightening in in equal measure, I think, probably for people listening to this. Um, This is exactly the kind of conversation that I think so many people seem to manage to avoid, even though it's so obviously at the heart of of what's going on here, right? Like there's, there's a lot of kind of specifics you can you can get into but under the surface as you're saying there's the like psychological as well as the like political and economic drives under these under these things and that's really like what it what it comes down to um and 
overseas, like the global response, you're not going to see it in the same in the same terms um, unless you're you're forced to confront that stuff, right? Um, and you're already seeing like denials of that uh, around the the world, like uh, Suella Braverman in the UK saying waving a Palestinian flag should become a criminal offence. Um, really scary kind of shutting down of even the most basic kind of liberal human rights discourse, which you know. <laughs> It's it's pretty uh pretty distressing pretty distressing stuff um and bombing the the rougher border obviously as you're saying Marilyn like that's that's inhuman right in the in the extreme um but in terms of the I suppose the global and and New Zealand response to that both in in media and political and activists and just human circles um do we have any kind of thoughts on what we've seen this time the kind of trajectory of that I totally agree with what. Nadia was saying, I think the the world as a whole has, has learned a lot from Palestinian struggles and tried to replicate it because they're so successful and intelligent, right? A lot of those strategies and patterns have been some of the best we've seen in the world. And, and yet still the inequality, the the kind of fascistic mentality that's um, under underlied that and undergirded that, the genocidal drive, as you were saying, has been so strong that look what we've got to. But in terms of responses you've seen from around the the world, Nadia, do you think this is different from other times? Do you think, does that give you any room for kind of, I don't want to say hope because obviously, obviously not, but you know, what kind of uh, notes are you, are you pulling out of that? I suppose. Yeah. I've always been a big fan of the word hope. Like I think it's really important. Um, For those of you who don't know, I'm a union organizer. I organize unorganized workers. And, um, you know, I think that, like, it's not, it's not just about this situation, right? But there's a, there's a, there's a, like, there's a, a natural and true cynicism around the world about our ability to change things in the face of power. And that is not a bad instinct. In fact, for many of us, it's an instinct, like, based on, you know, to use a term that we use about Israel, like, facts on the ground. Like, the facts on the ground are not looking that good. But, and I, th- and I think there's a certain kind of desperation as well when you have attempted every strategy and when you have um, exhausted every strategy and exhausted every option and nothing, like nothing cuts. And there's something that I'm reckoning with right now. Like, you know, I'm looking in the eyes of my dad who has been carrying this flag for 50 fucking years and he's been living in the West for a long time. And he said to me once, I remember in the 80s when we had this sense that stuff was going to shift. And I think, you know, that's that's part of the reason that there is a natural, like, slant of our movements, and you will witness it, towards the young. Because, like, only the young can begin to carry that, you know? Like, it, there comes a point where, you know, and I, I, I think I'm struggling those generations right now because I know that, you know, like 10 years ago I was a young activist who believed with every core in my being that like we would be the generation to, to shift the needle on this issue um because you you witness the momentum of it and um there's a, there's a real cynicism like I just want to be really straight up about this because it's not something I often talk about but I think that this is the space to now like among my Palestinian cousins who live in the West Bank they're over it all like, they don't want to hear about, like, I'm actually quite careful about any kind of indication that I'm self-promoting around this issue and our struggle because, you know, for me, I can sit here and, you know, kind of 
get the ear of people or become an interesting talking point in conversation. But for them, it's just their goddamn fucking life. And and as much as we like, and, and I and I and I don't like the self congratulatory stuff. But at the same time, like from a movement building perspective, I know that we need to damn well fucking try because that's the only way things ever change. And I'm not sure we will win. Like I am not sure we will win. I am not convinced we will win, but I am convinced that we must act. And I think that's where a lot of people are at. But the thing that we need to be mindful of in this time, because things are extremely heightened, is that we need to act. Like we must feel compelled to act. It's a responsibility to do it. And if we do not act, we are actually complicit. And I'm not saying that for people who've been politically trained in a, as Marilyn was talking about, some people have been politically trained on a completely different timeline. So I don't actually blame people for having a different political training. But what I will say is for the people who who have begun to be, you know, um, who have kind of, Come close enough to know, and this is the thing, I know that some of the bureaucrats and officials and politicians in this country fucking damn well know what is going on. They damn well know how ugly this is. They damn well know that we are the victim. They damn well know it. They just won't say it. And that is who we need to press on. Because until they have the political courage to break that consensus, which is so, like, it is so kind of, the way that the matrix, the, the the kind of success, I guess, the inverse success of the Zionist movement has been implanting a deep political and institutional fear in people that has this like incredible chill effect, which, which like I have seen and I have seen growing. And I have also seen in, like in the mirror world of that, you know, to use the Naomi Klein, Klein phrase, but in the mirror world, I've seen also this kind of like emboldened youth who have absolute clarity about what's going on. But these two parallel universes are moving in unison. And I actually was underestimating the strength of, because to see like, to think, you know, we had come so far and then to see Keir Starmer, the leader of the British Labour Party, say today, well, you know, I thought this is a human right. Like he knows the law. He knows the law. And what he's saying to us when he says, I give the Israelis full support to do their blockade. And let's be clear that right now the generators are running down in the hospitals in Gaza. They are about to be in total blackout. So we cannot even watch what goes on. Like we cannot even watch the war crimes that are about to unfold. They will not be recorded. They will not be seen. And that's exactly how it is wanted. The ambulances are being bombed. As, um, you know, as, uh, Marilyn says, you know, this is, this is all unfolding behind our eyes. And I saw, I saw something the other day that was like, you know, it was riffing on what Josephine says about, you know, we were being conditioned to accept the murder of people in Iraq and it's happening again now. We are being conditioned to accept the mass killing of Palestinians. But I, like, I didn't think, like, I thought the breakthrough would happen. But are we at the breakthrough? And if we're not, like, we have to give it everything we've got right now. Like there is no, like there is no, like we'll wait, you know, because I've always, like the organizer in me says, these things take time. We need to build. It's it's not going to happen overnight. You know, even with our actions that we're taking, we're taking action this weekend in Wellington on Sunday. We are saving our powder a little bit because we're going to have to do, we know we are going to be continuously in motion and in action over the next few months. But I think that um, like, History provides its openings and we do have to run at them. 
And now is the time to run towards the opening. But we need to have clarity when we run at that opening of what we are trying to run towards. And I think that's what we're trying to do within our organisation. Because if we're led from the place of trauma, and I mean this in general in politics, like I see trauma politics a lot all over the place at the moment. And I and I and I know where that comes from. So I'm not doing this like, you know, intellectual academic critique of it. But like, let's not be led from a place of trauma. If we're led from a place of tra- trauma is valid, just don't let it fucking drive the car. Don't let it fucking drive the car of your politics. Because that is not going to lead you to a good place. And so I, I think like what we're kind of reckoning with how to do is how do we gather up our people, gather up our people around us and recognize that people are going to have, we are going to be calling on people to have some really difficult conversations right now in an extremely politically and institutionally hostile space. And it may become more hostile under a right-wing government, but that is our responsibility to do that. And we will damn well fucking try. Um, and I, I don't know where the chips will fall. But the only option is to do what we can. And the, the Israeli government is on quicksand. They sort of know that. On an, you know, there's, there's a lot that they've done successfully, but they are on quicksand. And um, I, I think you can see it. I think you can see it. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what, sorry, again, not super coherent, but I'm wondering what Marilyn and you guys are thinking now as well. Yeah, uh, with regards to the international responses and um, and the response from New Zealand, um, I mean, it's not surprising. But at the same time, like you, you know, both of you, Marilyn and Nadia, have already spoken to. It's just um, it's just shocking to see how blatantly this is happening. So on the one hand, we have the Israeli um, foreign minister, defense minister, I think. Um, uh, saying that we are, you know, declaring a siege. Um, so materially, you know, blocking the survival needs of an entire population and simultaneously bombing and then calling them, you know, human animals. If you read anything about genocides in the past, these are the steps that lead to genocide. So, and and after this statement was made, I heard Germany saying that they are stopping humanitarian aid to Palestine. I heard Austria say that they're stopping humanitarian aid to Palestine. Later, I heard EU, one of EU's officials, say that they're also stopping aid. And then today, of course, there was a clarification saying that, no, you know, that's not the official position. But these are the instant responses to one of the key steps towards genocide that it's happening around us so it's just a it, the, the how blatant it is is really you know it's it's really confronting and it's really hard to believe and it just lays bare before us the hollowness of the so-called rules-based international order the idea of war crimes there is a double standard i'm just like you know it might be controversial but i'm just thinking back to you know muammar gaddafi who went to the united nations and he read the preamble of the United Nations. And he said, the first one article is all countries are equal. And then he says, this is not the case. We have the equal voice. No, it seems like he was right. There is a total double standard in the world. So when the when the United States and its allies are do, committing war crimes, it is completely, you know, acceptable. And other countries within that Western realm, which even today, are the hegemonic power of the world. We must remember United States has over 700 uh, military bases across the world. United States is 
the imperial hegemon even at this moment. So when with the backing of the imperial hegemon, anyone can commit war crimes. And this has just been laid bare before us. And, you know, the weak response from someone like Chris Hipkins is really appalling. Uh, but at the same time, I saw some, um, you know, ex little bits of hope from, for example, um, Debbie Ngarewa Packer, when she said, you know, the deaths of civilians is condemnable, but there is a larger history of settler colonial violence behind this that Western sources, you know, conveniently do not speak about. And so this is the knowledge that we are we have around us. So a lot of people are, are raised within this, you know, with this kind of knowledge that invisibilizes the plight of Palestinians and, you know, um, over and, and only focuses on one side of this conflict. And so I'm not surprised, but you know, like like Nadia and you um, said, Philip, I do see how impactful the strategies of the Palestinian movement has been. And I see that young people are standing up. And so there is a, you know, it's, it's a bit different. I'm seeing um, uh, demonstrations in New York, in, in, in Lyon, in France, which by the way was, um, suppressed by the police of France. And the police of France allowed pro-Israel uh, pro demonstrations to continue, but they cracked down on the Palestinian demonstrations. But on the other side, coming from India, which currently we have a right-wing Hindu nationalist government, which is moving closer and closer to the you know, Zionist uh, you know, government of Israel. Um, it's emboldening Islamophobic sort of political ideologies across the world as well. So there is a shift from India's traditional position of supporting you know, uh, people who have a similar experience of colonialism. And, um, you know, this Islamophobia is getting legitimized through the imperial hegemon and the powerful um, countries of the world in the West who claim to be the beacons of human rights, yet they are the ones perpetrating the most amount of violence uh, towards innocent civilian, Muslim civilians in Iraq, in, in Syria, in Afghanistan, in Palestine. So there is a legitimization of Islamophobia happening. So there's very many things happening and the global responses are quite interesting to observe. But I do agree that young people uh, in the West are, you know, are becoming more aware. And that's the silver lining. That's where the hope lies. And like you said, Nadia, these politicians are aware. Chris Hipkins is aware. Um, Keir Starmer is aware. And it's it's really deplorable that they would not, um, you know, inform their positions based on their awareness of the situation. One quick thing on that, Josephine, and I don't, I don't want to take up too much space here, but like, I think this is where kind of like, appeals to like the, the liberal kind of psyche doesn't work here right because like a pe like I I think they're totally aware um and I do think relationships are important and I think we can press on those people um and I think we should you know I think we should continue to press on those individuals and we can probably move some of them I I truly believe that I mean I've seen it with my own eyes and I've done it so I know I mean we've done it you know um but I think this is where, like, the moral kind of the moralistic political uh, the, the the pleas and the kind of human rights discourse does fall over a little bit. And I'm interested because I know Marilyn, you might feel a little bit differently than me on this. So I'm kind of keen to actually hear your 
like to robustly get into that because yeah I think that you know these people know but this is why it's important that we have a structural analysis as boring as that sounds like we need to have a structural and geopolitical and economic analysis of the world as it is otherwise like we do get into this loop where we're like why you know but being an organizer has helped demystify like why everything happens to me and there's very little mystery to many things anymore like once you become more politicized more radicalized and you begin to understand the structures that govern the world as it is whether it's capitalism or colonization racism when you begin to understand these structures in the way that they the way that they fall the way that they're enforced and the way that their consensus is maintained like it makes sense it's not like chris hipkins woke up the other day and decided to be an asshole it was just that the institutional weight of like this this um militaristic consensus of the world and the u.s's kind of this imperialist position on this issue just bears down on people in this way that is so unfathomable on a moral and human level and that's why we need to have a structural analysis but i am interested marilyn because like me and marilyn have had some riffs on like what we think about human rights the rule of law and appealing to those kind of um yeah those mechanisms and i feel they're increasingly meaningless and not that they shouldn't have meaning because i think on a base level we should be governed by a set of like values you know just like here we should have constitutional transformation because we should be governed by a set of values that like uh, collective punishment isn't okay like basic kind of like basic almost spiritually obvious kind of values that the world should be governed by but there's something about the the space that they were driven from for me that is always going to make them ring hollow and duplicitous. But I'm wondering if, Marilyn, you think there's some hope in that, like uh, interna- appealing to the international rule of law and the, um, the different conventions and stuff, because I know you, you maybe feel a bit differently. So uh, I speak a lot about this in times of crisis. Um, I circulate the statements of organizations that are uh, loyal to human rights and international humanitarian law. And they do that for a reason. It's not because I think those tools will do the whole job. It's because I think they will do half of the job. They they will do the protection. They address this minute's crisis. And they are the framework that we have for this minute's crisis, for the protection of 200,000 civilians who are in shelters this morning. That's the standard that we have. Those are the treaties, you know, that our governments have signed. Those are the frameworks. And I deeply believe that they are what we have at this moment and I will use them. But it's important not to attribute, not to hand the whole job to that framework because that's not what it was for. Those uh, standards bring us to other political tools. Those standards outline a vision, but they are not every step toward that vision. So yeah, I'm I'm very big on humanitarian law and civilian protections, but then that needs to bring us to the political tools. And a part of what I've been seeing in the last few days is uh, I, I see people on the far right driving a wedge more successfully than they have driven it before. It has since we established alternative Jewish voices, since I began to speak about this, people 
many of them Jewish, but not all of them have walked up to me after events and said, you know, I agree with you, but I can never say so. I, I understand justice, but you don't know what would happen in my family. That's ongoing. And those are the people of whom we have to insist, as Nadia has just said, this is the time to have the hard conversations. There is no other time but now. But what I see is this wedge being driven more and more successfully. It's like a, a singularity. If you say the word Palestine in the context of rights or, God forbid, political aspirations, then you are all of these things. There is no moderated, there is no modulated tone in which you're allowed to discuss this without attracting a torrent of abuse, which is not only personal, but offensive in every way that certain people can manage to make it offensive. They're driving a wedge between people who are undecided or people who are doubtful and the option of standing up. And it seems to me that the response to that is not an equal and opposite noise because they, you know, the right has a wider echo chamber. The, the institutional powers that be have a wider reach. So it's not about trying to shout an opposite and equal thing. It's got to be an act of creativity that responds with a vision that's, that's more spiritual. As you've said, that's more aspirational. It's a world that we want not the world that we see around us today. So I that's what I'm trying to formulate, waiting to hear. I think lots of people are waiting for us to drive the wedge differently, to say to those folks who are not yet mobilized in this cause, you can't be with those guys on the right. You don't want the world that they want. You want an aspirational world, let us lay it out for you and come and join us. That's the kind of action that I'm hoping we can formulate. Thanks. Yeah, I'm glad this conversation's sort of organically turned to tactics and um, how to actually have these these changes, right? These micro changes or or whatever you, you want to call it. Because I think that's the final thing we really need to kind of uh, grapple with even in, in passing is what's the what's the purpose, right, of this of this position that we're we're in? Like how can we maximally leverage anything we have? Um and and what is that? that look like, right? Nadia reference a kind of relational strategy. Um, so that might be, you know, talking to people who you think are influenceable in certain ways and seeing what weight you can kind of leverage there through different channels. There, you know, we know that different politicians have different amounts of, of sympathy, but it's about getting the ones who actually do have sympathy to, to stand up and say that, right? As you're saying, Marilyn, like there's a huge amount of kind of soft power pushing against that right now. Um, even in the the minor parties debate the other uh, the other night, they were they were asked about uh, whether the entirety of Hamas should be designated a terrorist group, not just the military wing. You know, a very like specific question, but as a kind of a cipher, I think, to to talk about like the quote unquote Palestine question, I suppose. Um, and Act said yes straight away. New Zealand First it sort of sort of implied they it's likely. And even Greens into Party Māori, who we know are much more sympathetic on it, didn't really answer the question. They kind of talked around it, right? Um, because it's very easy to kind of attack these specific kind of soundbite things, and that that's what works in the right wing media. Yeah, as a cipher to kind of get through to those those values and attack people who hold any level of nuance on the subject. So yeah, I just I'd like to kind of finish this out by talking about 
tactics and and outcomes and what we what we would like to see work and maybe what some of those conversations we've all been talking about might look like Philip, I just, um, you know, it might not be exactly what you want, but I just want to also say that it's also a time for us to, you know, stand up and and s- courageously speak the truth. This is probably something that we can, you know, we need to do in times like this. And there's a lot of things, uh, you know, nuances that are not being discussed. For example, how uh, Netanyahu propped up Hamas um, for many years because he he preferred Hamas to be the opposition as opposed to a secular moderate uh, Palestinian authority. So, uh, and then the other thing is about, you know, the false narratives which have been, you know, uh, spreading like wildfire, the 40 decapitated babies. There's no corroborative evidence for this. And the IDF themselves saying that we do not, we don't have any evidence to substantiate this. Uh, The allegations of rape, um, LA Times retracting these things. There's a lot of um, you know, less discussed truths that are uh, that are happening, which we can speak out, you know, loudly. Um, and so the other thing I also wanted to say is connecting it to our economic system. As people on both sides, Israel and Palestine, suffer, but disproportionately, you know, Palestinians are now facing, Gazans are facing genocide and extermination. Uh, but at the same time, we have some entities, global entities, who are rejoicing. We saw the stocks of weapons manufacturers surging. So we have an economic system that benefits, that profits from human suffering. We also need to rethink these these aspects, these structural things, as Nadia was saying, um, to really get to the bottom of it. Why is it that the United States has been pouring weapons into this crisis to, to make it even more deadly? Yeah, so these are the questions and some of the truths that we need to find out and speak out loudly. Can I speak to another piece of it? And then Nadia, who has much more experience, I'm sure, (laughs) can round this out more meaningfully. This is a sliver. Um, When I was trying to understand the tone in which to tell my and my team's story, I did a bunch of research to understand what kind of speech mobilizes people who are not mobilized. Uh, It's a different voice from the voice that speaks to people who are already thinking about an issue. The speech that mobilizes newly is not that factual analysis that plays a different role. The speech that mobilizes is aspirational, it leads with values, and it tells stories so that people can identify with the aspiration and the story. That's the kind of storytelling that has, as Nadia said, helped to humanize the experience of the families of uh, Israelis who've lost relatives in the last few days. There's a, a, a purpose as well as a human fact. There's a purpose to those stories. They are mobilizing. So there's a great need to speak aspirationally, to explain the world that people imagine, and to tell human stories about Palestine as well. Yeah, thanks, Marilyn. Um, Yeah, I want to talk on the story thing and I want to talk on the relational organising thing because I think these are two things which, to be honest, like, I think have become so kind of almost meaningless, like rendered meaningless, right? Like, and I think that people think of these as not, like, they don't think of them as, like, intelligent political strategies right and I and I just want to unpack that a little bit because like 
on the first one on relational organizing I want to be like quite specific about this um so I think sometimes can, people can talk about relational organizing in this really fucking pithy way where it's like we'll do relational organizing and you know and we'll just like build relationships and, and blah 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 I'm not talking about that okay what I'm talking about is an organizing strategy which is actually rooted in the fact that we live in Aotearoa, okay, which is a small friggin' country, um, which is predicated upon everyone bloody knowing everyone. And Māori fucking know that. So I take my cues from Māori on how to organize, and I have learned an immense amount. Like, I am indebted to my Māori colleagues because for so long, I was walking this path of being so like if you if you are politically trained as a socialist or a Marxist, which I I was and I and I I remain, you know, like you, you we become obsessed with the internationalist kind of perspective, and that is a fascinating thing. And there's a reason, you know, that we should be internationalists, and and for all the reasons that Josephine I think said so compellingly, and there is so much to be learnt from the world around us. But we cannot forget, like, where we are grounded and the context of where we are now. And Māori know how to fucking organise in this country, and it is about relationships in this in this little set of villages that we live in. And our relationships, through our relationships, we compel people to do things that they wouldn't have otherwise done. And through our relationships, we surround people when they have to take political risks because we are asking people to take political risks. And I, I will do that unapologetically. I am going to be calling on people and picking up the phone over the next few weeks and asking people in positions of power to take political risks for us. And I believe that some of them will answer that call. And that is because of the relationships that we have. And so I just want to be clear that it's not this like pithy thing. It's actually deep. It's strategic. And because it's often seen as a gendered kind of way of organizing, it's actually really devalued. The second thing that I want to talk about is storytelling. Because I, because I work in a professionalized context as well, one of the things that I'm kind of a little bit disillusioned with is this idea of like values based messaging, and that if we because because of my work, you know, we've we've also looked a lot over a lot of that research as well, and one of the things that has been found and is often repeated to me is that stuff that engenders fear actually immobilizes people. It stops people from wanting to act. Now, I I take that with a pinch of salt because I think sometimes we need to be politically honest with people and it might not always sound aspirational and be led from this values-based place. But I actually agree with Marilyn in that there is something very basic and human and even like, again, Indigenous people have known this for a gazillion years in the fact that we understand our world and our, our world is made up of stories. Like that is literally the way we understand everything around us. and. And so, again, this is something that's become like kind of almost rendered meaningless, this idea of story. people are like, oh, the power of story. But the power of story, story is fucking powerful. Edward Said knew this. This is narrative. This is how you get hegemony. And so I think, you know, we do need to insist on those stories being told. And we need to be really delicate about how we do that because there, there is this sort of like fetishization, there's this exploitation of things. And I know I'm saying a few like kind of buzzwords here, but it's true. And we need to be careful because when people share their stories and they share their vulnerabilities, you know, it's, it's, 
it's like it, it can be a really exposing process. And as Palestinians, we're often called on to exploit some of those most horrific and tragic stories of our life. And as people in my life, I wouldn't ask to do that. They have those stories, but I would not call on them to do that. But I do think that we do need to communicate a vision because it's not just about Palestine. Like, and we all know that, right? It's not just about Palestine. Like, we are living in a deeply cynical world where the, the climate is being destroyed. You know, the, the earth, the whenua, the like Papatuanuku is being desecrated, desecrated. People are being desecrated and not just in Palestine. And, um, and workers all over the world are being completely exploited. You know, we've seen the rise of the billionaire class just go through the fucking roof. And all, all these pieces, in all these pieces, like, we do need to, they are driving the wedge. And they're not just driving the wedge on Palestine, they're driving the wedge on everything. And they're doing it quite fucking successfully because they're saying, you can be in our club and your story and your opinion will be valid. Your experience of victimhood will be valid, even if you are not the true victim. So I think, like, um, I always think, which is the clopapa that we're running with when we do this first action this Sunday, which is that we are communicating to people in very clear terms and showing leadership around um, a vision. And that vision feels very far away right now. You know, the metaphor that we are using is justice as the seed, peace as the flower, and that feels very far away. Like, we are not at the flower, you know? Like, we are grappling with that seed and just trying to fucking get it to germinate. But if we come together... And we come around each other and we bring our people around us and we support each other. Um, and we and we take stock of what is happening around us and we nourish our relationships with each other and we continue to use those relational strategies. I believe in this country that can hold some success. Um, and I believe that because of what I've witnessed in my time as an organiser. And so we're going to continue to press on. Let's wrap that. Let's wrap that up. Um, but just quickly, let's go around. If you want to plug anything, um, if you want people showing up to your events, if you want people emailing you, finding organizations you want them to check in on, this is a time to shout out any organizations people should be following. If you've listened to this podcast in the last hour, if something sparked your interest, um, maybe you haven't been following this issue as closely as you would like to in future. Maybe you have questions and want to show up to an event, uh, any of the above. Uh, Nadia, why don't you start? Where should people go if they want to find your work? Not Twitter or not X because I'm not fucking there and I never will be. Sorry, but, you know, that's that's one hellhole I'm not going into. We already live in one. You can find one of the foremost um, organisations for Justice for Palestinians in Aotearoa, aptly named Justice for Palestine, on our Facebook page, which is Justice for Palestine, or on Instagram. And from there, you can find out how to become a member. And I would really recommend right now that if you want to stay in the loop, becoming part of a democratic membership-based organization like Justice for Palestine is exactly the kind of thing to do. And we can only continue to do this organizing work with the koha and contributions of everyone so that we have enough in that kitty to be able to do the work ahead of us that is very much going to need to be done. Um, and at this point, it's not just about contributing core hard money. It's also like we need volunteers. We need people with skills. So please like, get in touch if you feel like you have something to contribute because everybody has a role to play and there is a role for you if you're interested in playing it. Thank you, Nadia. Uh, Marilyn, where can people find your work? Um, I'm on Twitter as Skin on Both Sides. 
My organization is Alternative Jewish Voices. Uh, you can search for us as AJV or Alternative Jewish Voices. Uh, for actions on Palestine, we partner with and we are in awe of Justice for Palestine. So I'll be there on Sunday. Thanks. Beautiful. All right. Let's wrap that up. Thanks so much for coming along. That's been another episode of One of 200. Share this with your friends, uh, anyone who you think might find this interesting. And have a great week. We will catch you next time. I think certainly right now, like maybe that it would be nice to end this podcast and it might not be your usual talk and it might feel a little bit woo-woo with something a little bit more spiritual. Um, and I know that Marilyn kind of always knows the right thing to say. I would say that uh, an hour or so ago, I was in a study session with <laughs> my study partner, who is also a rabbi. So it is uh, something that I'm trying to lean on to get through this. <laughs> That's not easy. Um, but the most, the fundamental response that I have when religion becomes a divisive force is to just go back to what is, to me, the core statement of Judaism, which is B'Tselem Elohim. Uh, this is why the foremost Israeli human rights organization is called B'Tselem, which means in the image of the divine or in the image of God, and it's a universal statement. It, nowhere does it say Jews are B'Tselem Elohim. It says we are all B'Tselem Elohim, and therefore our fundamental equality and human dignity is a core statement of my religion. Nationalism is not. So that's a thing to fall back on. But Selim Elohim, that's why we're here.